the Dark Volumes podcast. So, what brings you here? Do you feel a little like a horror movie character that saw a spooky house and went, oh, that looks interesting? Well, if that's the case, I do appreciate it. I'm Russell, your host, and every month I'm going to bring you a new story from classic horror authors like H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, Robert Chambers, Mary Shelley, and all sorts of others uh, that I can bring to you. I also have contemporary authors that I would love to read their stories on here, but even the Crypt Keeper himself would run into problems with copyright law, no matter how much he loved the dark and terrifying. As for me, I'm a professional voiceover talent who also loves horror movies, horror stories, horror books, horror novels, graphic novels, horror video games, all those sorts of scary, spooky things. And so I wanted to combine these interests, my professional life and my personal interests, to bring something to you. One of my personal favorite settings is the Cthulhu Mythos, as many other people also enjoy. I've always been greatly intrigued by the idea of beings so much greater than man that just the idea of seeing them would drive you absolutely insane, if not be outright fatal. Although 99% of Lovecraft's creations were completely unaware of man or could care less about them. And so they lacked a, a good and evil dynamic that a lot of people try to make out of it, especially with the cultists and the sacrifices and all these other things. Although that is more of the human element of it. They see these things and they're like, oh, they must obviously be wicked and horrible, um, when really Cthulhu could care less about the Earth or humanity. Because, as is appropriate for cosmic horror, humanity and the Earth don't matter. We are one little dot in a vast sea of nothingness. It's sort of a dark flip of Carl Sagan's The Pale Blue Dot. Yes, we are alone on this tiny little speck, but there are things out there that are so much bigger, and we can't do anything about it. I do kind of favor uh, one of my more contemporary favorite authors, Laird Barron, and his Old Leech mythos, the children of Old Leech, um, given that his mythos is a little bit more sinister and malicious in intent. And even though I like reading, you know, spooky and scary things, I'm, I'm a little jaded after all that I actually have read and watched. And so I, it's difficult for me to actually get kind of jumpy or scared. However, Laird Barron's writing is one of the things that still just sends a shiver down my spine. You have to read a few of his stories before you can get the effect that I got from the title of one of his collections called The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All. And once I'd read some of his works, just reading the title of that book freaked me out a little bit, because let's be honest, it's not that beautiful, um, at least from our perspective. And so if you do enjoy Lovecraft and Poe and, and Thomas Ligotti, who is still more contemporary, um, and, and, uh, all of the, and cosmic horror in general, I highly recommend picking up and reading Laird Barron. He is a terrifying author and one of my personal favorites. And his particular uh, mythos and just the, the mindset of the children of Old Leech and, and other monsters and characters in his setting have influenced my own writing 
and I can't recommend him enough. It's absolutely fantastic. And I would love to one day be able to read something from his mythos on this podcast. So we'll see if that ever gets there. And if it does, you can bet it will be in all caps on that episode. Because I will be as happy as a clown. <laughs> so we're going to start off with a couple of stories here for our first few episodes. And there'll be all sorts of different ranges. Sometimes you'll get a shorter story. Sometimes you'll get something a little lengthier. But they're all going to be brought to you with what I assume the marketing types would call sinister sincerity. I've been told my voice is creepy but soothing. So I imagine that listening to the stories on this podcast are going to be a little like getting a shoulder rub from Vincent Price. You can feel free to listen to them as you nod off to sleep at night as long as you're not afraid of nightmares. But if you do, that's okay too, because this is, after all, the dark volumes. Every now and then, I may have a still-living author who has given permission to share something with you, and so I might bring you their dark words here and there. There's going to be a little something for everyone here, from the classics like Call of Cthulhu and the horror over Innsmouth, The Raven, and others, and some other horror stories from authors like William Faulkner and Lord Dunsany, or even Charles DeVay, if you've never heard of him before. The stories will also be set to some appropriate music, the kind that numbs your mind while the words of the story send a chill down your spine. And sometimes I may just sit back and play some old record that I have sitting around here once I dust them and get the cobwebs off. So, let me give you a brief example of what you can expect to experience here in the Dark Volumes. This is a short story by Lord Dunsany from his collection The Sword of Welleran and Other Stories, called The Ghosts. The argument that I had with my brother in his great lonely house will scarcely interest my readers, not those at least whom I hope may be attracted by the experiment that I undertook, and by the strange things that befell me in that hazardous region, in which so lightly and so ignorantly I allowed my fancy to enter. It was at Wunley that I had visited him. Now Wunley stands in a wide isolation, in the midst of a dark gathering of old whispering cedars, they nod their heads together when the north wind comes, and nod again and agree, and furtively grow still again, and say no more a while. The north wind is to them like a nice problem among wise old men. They nod their heads over it, and mutter about it altogether. They know much, those cedars. They have been there so long. Their grandsires knew Lebanon, and the grandsires of these were the servants of the king of Tyre and came to Solomon's court. And amidst these black-haired children of gray-headed time stood the old house of Wunley. I know not how many centuries had lashed against it their evanescent foam of years, but it was still unshattered, and all about it were the things of long ago, as cling strange growths to some sea-defying rock. Here, like the shells of long-dead limpets, was armor that men encased themselves in long ago, 
Here, too, were tapestries of many colors, beautiful as seaweed. No modern flotsam ever drifted hither. No early Victorian furniture. No electric light. The great trade routes that littered the years with empty meat tins and cheap novels were far from here. Well, well, the centuries will shatter it and drive its fragments on to distant shores. Meanwhile, while it yet stood, I went on a visit there to my brother, and we argued about ghosts. My brother's intelligence on this subject seemed to me to be in need of correction. He mistook things imagined for things having an actual existence. He argued that second-hand evidence of persons having seen ghosts proved ghosts to exist. I said that even if they had seen ghosts, this was no proof at all. Nobody believes that there are red rats, though there is plenty of first-hand evidence of men having seen them in delirium. Finally, I said I would see ghosts myself and continue to argue against their actual existence. So I collected a handful of cigars and drank several cups of very strong tea and went without my dinner and retired into a room where there was dark oak and all the chairs were covered with tapestry. And my brother went to bed, bored with our argument, and trying hard to dissuade me from making myself uncomfortable all the way up the old stairs as I stood at the bottom of them, and as his candle went winding up and up, I heard him still trying to persuade me to have supper and go to bed. It was a windy winter, and outside the cedars were muttering I know not what about, but I think that they were Tories of a school long dead and were troubled about something new. Within, a great damp log upon the fireplace began to squeak and sing and struck up a whining tune, and a tall flame stood over it and beat time, and all the shadows crowded round and began to dance. In distant corners, old masses of darkness sat still like chaperones and never moved. Over there, in the darkest part of the room, stood a door that was always locked. It led into the hall, but no one ever used it. Near that door, something had happened once of which the family are not proud. We do not speak of it. There in the firelight stood the venerable forms of the old chairs. The hands that had made their tapestries lay far beneath the soil. The needles with which they wrought were many separate flakes of rust. No one wove now in that old room. No one but the assiduous ancient spiders who, watching by the deathbed of the things of yore, worked shrouds to hold their dust. In shrouds about the cornices already lay the heart of the oak wainscot that the worm had eaten out. Surely at such an hour, in such a room, a fancy already excited by hunger and strong tea might see the ghosts of former occupants. I expected nothing less. The fire flickered and the shadows danced. Memories of strange historic things rose vividly in my mind, but midnight chimed solemnly from a seven-foot clock and nothing happened. My imagination would not be hurried and the chill that is with the small hours had come upon me, and I had nearly abandoned myself to sleep when in the hall adjoining there arose the rustling of silk dresses that I had waited for and expected. 
Then there entered two by two the high-born ladies and their gallants of Jacobian times. They were little more than shadows, very dignified shadows and almost indistinct. But you have all read ghost stories before. You have all seen in museums the dresses of those times. There is little need to describe them. They entered, several of them, and sat down on the old chairs, perhaps a little carelessly considering the value of the tapestries. Then the rustling of their dresses ceased. Well, I had seen ghosts, and was neither frightened nor convinced that ghosts existed. I was about to get up out of my chair and go to bed when there came a sound of pattering in the hall, a sound of bare feet coming over the polished floor, and every now and then a foot would slip, and I heard claws scratching along the wood as some four-footed thing lost and regained its balance. I was not frightened, but uneasy. The pattering came straight towards the room that I was in. Then I heard the sniffing of expectant nostrils. Perhaps uneasy was not the most suitable word to describe my feelings then. Suddenly, a herd of black creatures larger than bloodhounds came galloping in. They had large, pendulous ears. Their noses were to the ground, sniffing. They went up to the lords and ladies of long ago and fawned about them disgustingly. Their eyes were horribly bright and ran down to great depths. When I looked into them, I knew suddenly what these creatures were, and I was afraid. They were the sins, the filthy, immortal sins of those courtly men and women. How demure she was, the lady that sat near me on the old world chair. How demure she was, and how fair to have beside her with its jowl upon her lap, a sin with such cavernous red eyes, a clear case of murder. And you, yonder lady, with the golden hair, surely not you. And yet that fearful beast with the yellow eyes slinks from you to yonder courtier there. And whenever one drives it away, it slinks back to the other. Over there a lady tries to smile as she strokes the loathsome furry head of another's sin. But one of her own is jealous and intrudes itself under her hand. Here sits an old nobleman with his grandson on his knee, and one of the great black sins of the grandfather is licking the child's face, and has made the child its own. Sometimes a ghost would move and seek another chair, but always his pack of sins would move behind him. Poor ghosts, poor ghosts, how many flights they must have attempted for two hundred years from their hated sins how many excuses they must have given for their presence, and the sins were with them still, and still unexplained. Suddenly one of them seemed to scent my living blood, and bayed horribly, and all the others left their ghosts at once, and dashed up to the sin that had given tongue. The brute had picked up my scent near the door by which I had entered, and they moved slowly nearer to me, sniffing along the floor and uttering every now and then their fearful cry. I saw that the whole thing had gone too far, but now they had seen me. Now they were all about me. They sprang up, trying to reach my throat, and whenever their claws touched me, horrible thoughts came into my mind, and unutterable desires dominated my heart. I planned bestial things as these creatures leaped around me, 
and planned them with a masterly cunning. A great red-eyed murder was among the foremost of those furry things from whom I feebly strove to defend my throat. Suddenly, it seemed to me good that I should kill my brother. It seemed important to me that I should not risk being punished. I knew where a revolver was kept. After I'd shot him, I would dress the body up and put flour on the face like a man that had been acting as a ghost. It would be very simple, and I would say that he had frightened me, and the servants had heard us talking about ghosts. There were one or two trivialities that would have to be arranged, but nothing escaped my mind. Yes, it seemed to me very good that I should kill my brother as I looked into the red depths of this creature's eyes. But one last effort as they dragged me down. If two straight lines cut one another, I said, the opposite angles are equal. Let A, B, C, D cut one another at E. Then the angle C, E, A, C, E, B equal two right angles, prop 13. Also, C, E, A, A, E, D equal two right angles. I moved towards the door to get the revolver. A hideous exultation arose among the beasts. But the angle C, E, A is common. Therefore, A, E, D equals C, E, B. In the same way, C-E-A equals D-E-B, Q-E-D. It was proved. Logic and reason reestablished themselves in my mind. There were no dark hounds of sin. The tapestry chairs were empty. It seemed to me an inconceivable thought that a man should murder his brother. Who knew mathematical formulas could hold off ghosts? Maybe someone should have told Sam and Dean. This was a small example of what you can expect to get on the Dark Volumes podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and will come back and join us for our first official episode, where you'll be getting one of Lovecraft's biggest classics. Talk to you soon.